Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at NortonSimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at LAist.com slash sweeps. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to be with you with our critics this week, Christy Lemire. She's film critic for RogerEbert.com and co-host of the Breakfast All Day YouTube and podcast series. Wade Major of Synagogues.com and Charles Solomon of Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. Well, we've all been eagerly anticipating Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. It's the sequel to the 2018 Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, the animated action adventure, which is uh, written by Phil Lord, Chris Middler, and uh, David Callahan, and there are multiple directors for the movie. Charles, please start us with this new Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Well, after the one-size-fits-all kind of homogenized look of so many recent American animated features, This is completely different. This may be the most visually flamboyant animated film since Yellow Submarine. Wow. Uh, Color and shape and design are all wild. There are artistic references to everything from uh, the notebooks of Leonardo to the uh, experimental 30s films of Oscar Fischinger. Uh, Just this extraordinary visual a potpourri. There's even a reference to Jeff Koontz with a very funny bit where a villain slices open one of his balloon dogs and discovers it's full of candy. Um, Miles Morales is back. So is Gwen. So are many of the other characters from the first film. Um, The film kind of sprawls at two hours and 20 minutes. Uh, But again, visually very, very exciting. But I had two reservations. One is the sets are so elaborate and so complex and unconventional in their structure, it's sometimes hard to follow where the characters are going and why. There's a long fight chase scene towards the end where they're going up this strange structure at a kind of spider headquarters, and you're not sure why they're climbing this or what progress they're making as the sequence progresses. Um, it's, it's, I found it no sense of location and having trouble following, well, are they going from point A to point B and, and why? And uh, this may be heresy, but I think they might have been wiser to split the film into Gwen's story and Miles' story and split it that way rather than trying to interweave them and split it temporally in the middle because it's 20 minutes into the film before you see Miles, who is whom everyone has come to see again. And you need at the beginning of the film that moment when you're on Hoth and suddenly realize, oh, there's Luke and Leia and Han and they're all fighting the Empire there. And you keep kind of wondering, well, yeah, this is interesting and she's a good character, but Where's Miles? I'm I'm sure that's not going to affect the box office a nickel. This is going to make a fortune. It's lots of fun. It's an immediate front runner for the Oscar for animated feature. Christy. I love this movie so much, and I kept falling in love with it over and over and over again. It is just wondrous. The variety of textures and colors and animation styles and just the energy off the top just really grabs you and just challenges you and you think you've seen one amazing cool thing and then another and then another and another. There's just, it just feels so alive and thrilling and like anything is possible. And it is so funny the way the original Spider-Verse was. I love that first Spider-Verse movie. The first movie. one was great. It's my son's favorite movie ever. And the, the idea of like anything topping it in terms of just the, the boldness of the animation, which just seemed impossible, but they really, they really have done that here. And the thing that Charles is talking about, 
they're going to the moon, Charles. They they say like it's like a passing reference. Like this, where's this thing going? Oh, it's going to the moon, and that's why it's taking a long time, I guess, because the moon's far away. Um, but <laughs> I thought it was really impressive the way this movie has its cake and eats it too, because. If there is a complaint to be had by cynics, it's like, oh, it's just fan service. It's just like one Easter egg after another after another because it's like every possible imaginable Spider-Man iteration. So they please the purists in that way. They please the fans in that way. But there's something really subversive here about the nature of fandom and the nature of canon and just the the fervor people have to be so pure with it and you can't deviate from it. And this movie challenges that notion. Like, why does this hero have to go through these steps every time? Why must it turn out this way every time to please people, to satiate them and give them what they want? And so I thought that was impressive the way they threaded that needle with like giving what they want, but also challenging their desire to have what they want at the same time. Um, it is unexpectedly emotional. I will say I got teary-eyed kind of early on that's not a spoiler it's just me being a dorky mom there's some cool stuff miles is now 15 and cool stuff with him and his mom the voice cast is tremendous i just had so much fun spider-man across the spider-verse wade it's movies like this that remind me that i murdered my inner child a long time ago uh i'm gonna have a little bit of a get off my lawn reaction to it i i really did like the previous spider-verse film i love the animation here i really respect it i do think that there's a there's there's a, a a very bold attempt to take the nature of comic book uh still artwork and to bring it into the cinematic realm to give it cinematic life the panels and the perspectives and the artwork and all of that to give it real uh, motion i think is incredibly impressive because they succeed in that my problem is more with how much they're trying to do in one movie um, I, I concede this movie is for people half my age and they will love it and they will make it a blockbuster. So I'm not the audience for this film. But when the storytelling slows down for the teen angst stories and uh, the, you know, how am I going to deal with, uh, you know, the boyfriend and the girlfriend and my parents and school and all of that stuff in the lives of these teen superheroes, I've been there so many times that it just doesn't it doesn't feel fresh and resonant to me. So um, and then it picks up and things are exploding and there are you know 500 Spider Men and Spider Women doing things that I can't follow. And yeah, I mean I think they very wisely made a film that that begs to be seen multiple times to catch all the Easter eggs to catch all the references. And I laughed a lot and I had a lot of fun. But at two hours and fifteen minutes or so. I feel like, you know, they maybe needed to, to somehow find a way to distill the storytelling to something a little more manageable. We're talking about Spider-Man. Across the Spider-Verse, in wide release, rated PG. It's directed by Joaquim Dos Santos, Kemp Powers, and Justin K. Thompson. Written by Phil Lord, Chris Miller, and David Callahan. Again, it's rated PG in the sequel to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Past Lives, uh, a film starring Greta Lee and Teo Yu. It's directed and written by Celine Song. Christy, please tell us about Past Lives. This is an achingly beautiful and just emotionally subtle and so powerfully understated film. This is the total opposite of Spider-Verse. <laughs> <laughs> you want your alternative programming, you've got it in Past Lives. So Greta Lee and Teo Yu play... Friends who were first friends in South Korea as kids. They were like 12 years old. You see them in the beginning as kids or characters as kids. And then it flashes ahead 12 years. And she has at first moved to Canada with her family. And he stayed in South Korea. She's now a playwright, an aspiring playwright in New York City. And they reconnect over Facebook. And they have just this instantaneous connection with each other over Skype. And... It's this longing, this what if, it's sort of a, a sliding doors kind of conceit where like, and we've all had this with somebody who maybe was like a first love or like a great friend and the idea of like, what if I had stayed? What if they had come along with me? What if, what if this happened? What if I hadn't made this decision? And it's how they get to know each other 12 years later and then again, 12 more years later. So you see them at age 12, age 24 and age 36. And it's how that relationship 
always kind of stays the same, like the, the core bond. They're so different now. He has stayed back in South Korea. She is much more ambitious. She is now married to John Magaro, who um, has an unexpected presence as like the, the third wheel in this relationship. And that does not necessarily play out the way you might expect in, in a lesser film with simpler ambitions. Um, but it's so true emotionally as far as the connections we make and the idea coming from the title of like, we're all interconnected in some way and in, in some previous life, maybe this worked out for us. It's, and again, this is the kind of story you've seen before where people feel like they're meant to be together. The, um, the Richard Linklater before trilogy keeps getting evoked here in, in comparisons. And, and I, see, I see that because there's sort of a, a melancholy and a, and a what if to it. But the way the storytelling is so poetic in a really understated way and the way it's edited there are these quick wisps of like flash forwards and flashbacks that just make you just hold your breath like oh my god wait that, that didn't even occur to me like that could be that and I'm not saying it in a very inarticulate way but I'll say it took my breath away over and over again the way it's cut together and the nature of memory and the nature of, of, of just love and friendship and it's beautiful it's shot beautifully I love the score it's just it's a must see on the screen Past Lives, a film which takes us both to South Korea and here in the U.S. Uh, Greta Lee Taeyu, John Magaro star Celine Song wrote and directed it. It's rated PG-13 in English and Korean, and Past Lives is in select theaters. We continue on Film Week with uh, the French comedic drama uh, Rise, or Encore, uh, is the uh, French title of the film. It's directed by Cedric Klepish. Uh, Wade, tell us about Rise. Uh, I am a huge fan of Klepish. Uh, I, he, you know, most famous for L'Auberge Espagnole and its two sequels, which that family of characters is now continuing on Amazon Prime in the series Greek Salad. So that's sort of what, what uh, Klepish is best known for. But um, he's just an amazing chronicler of French life and particularly friendships and family relationships and and these these tapestries that he finds that are that are drawn from unusual corners and in this case it's this really wonderful story of a ballerina played by Marion Barbeau who uh, suffers an injury that could be conceivably career-ending and that kind of dovetails into all of these issues related to her father and friends and relationships and uh, during a retreat, kind of a rehab retreat with a bunch of you know other friends and, and associates, um, she kind of has a, a career reawakening. And uh, it, it's just a really unexpected, lovely journey that you go on with her. She's a tremendous actress too. I mean, a you know legit ballerina, but really a very, very talented actress. Lots of very subtle choices. And uh, you don't really know where it's going. And when you finally get to that place, it's just there's an ah, there's kind of this wonderful glow that you feel about where you've gone. And Clapiche just kind of takes you there without without showing his hand at any point. I thought it was just a, it's a beautiful, wonderful, tender film. Rise is the film from France. What do you think, Christy? I liked it a lot, too. And I like that he lets the performance segments play out. Right. He lets us get in the middle of the rehearsals and he lets them just go for a long time. And so then when we see the final performance, we feel like we're invested in it, too. Like we've been along for the ride the whole way. Um, Yeah. The dance is beautiful. A big section of it takes place at this like artist's retreat in Brittany and says to and to watch everyone coming in and out and just like the pure joy of creation and of artistry it. it seems it sounds so corny as i say the words but like is presented in such an understated way and we're really a part of it and uh marion barbeau as wade says is, is a lovely actress so natural i think this is maybe one of her first things she's ever done i believe it is yeah you, you never know she's yeah. she's such a natural here and uh, the fact that she of course is an excellent dancer is crucial to this to believing her journey but uh, to watch her get to experience that in different forms of dance is really cool, too. And, and the way that the, a lot of the dance is not the—there there are the rehearsed dances. There are the, you know, the, the performances. But a lot of the dance is just spontaneous. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there is that joy of creation in that of, of there's never a wrong time to pursue the arts. And we sometimes think, oh, you got to set time aside for your writing or for your performance or for whatever it is. But sometimes in the moment makes it more magical. And that and that is what makes this film magical. I also love the way it's shot that when she's a ballerina at the beginning and it's all very rigid, like there's like a, a linear nature to the, the camera work. It's all very like precise and minimalist and like 
there's a rigidity to it. And then once she gets out into the world and is trying yeah. to, her body, she learns her body better. And it's like there's a freedom to the camera movement mm-hmm. that's softer. And I like that part of it too. And and are there comedic elements? It's billed as a comedic drama or is it pretty much straight drama? There's, there's, some, there's, some, <laughs> there's some funny stuff. Um I wouldn't call it comedic. I would say it's humorous. All right. More humorous than that. Yeah. Rise is the film from director and co-screenwriter Cedric Klapish, a film starring Marion Barbeau. Rise is unrated in French with English subtitles, and you can see it at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. We'll be back with our critics. Many more films, including the horror flick The Boogeyman, coming right up. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on four consecutive Fridays starting May 10th. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. Larry Mantle joined by critics Charles Solomon, Wade Major, and Christy Lemire. Christy's going to tell us about the horror film The Boogeyman, starring Sophie Thatcher and Chris Messina, Rob Savage, the director. It's written by Scott Beck, Brian Woods, and Mark Heyman, based on a Stephen King short story of uh, 60 years ago or 50 years ago, excuse me, he's not that old. Christy, what did you think of The Boogeyman? So it has a really cool and universally relatable premise, which is when you're a little kid, you think something is underneath your bed. Or you think something is in the closet. And as you're falling asleep, maybe you're afraid of the dark. You want your mom or dad to like check one more time and just make sure it's clear, make sure no one's there. This is taking that to an extreme where like the boogeyman's real and he's coming after you, especially if you are vulnerable vulnerable because you are experiencing some sort of grief or loss. Um, it, he knows who to prey upon, the boogeyman. And so um, Chris Messina is this therapist. He has these two dogs. Daughters, Sophie Thatcher, who is very good in this, is a teenager. And then Vivian Lyra Blair, also very good. She was the little girl who played young Princess Leia in the Obi-Wan series on Disney+. Um, they're all reeling from the loss of their mom in a car accident about a year earlier. This guy comes in, played by David Desmulsion. He is chilling and he has also experienced great loss and because he shows up he brings a boogeyman with him and Oops. now he's passed it along to them and it's how they deal with it um the sound design is very cool the not knowing what is actually there can be quite tense and quite chilling um the use of light is often inspired because apparently he he thrives in the dark so you've got to figure out ways to like flush him out with light um the younger daughter has this she already was afraid of the dark. She has this ball of light. It's like a bowling ball shaped white light. And she'll like roll it down the hallway of her very creaky house and wonder what's going to happen when it gets to the end. What's she going to see? So there are some moments that are quite tense. But the rules as to like what actually works against him are very confusing and seem kind of convoluted and contradictory. Um, when you actually see what he looks like it looks really cheesy like not seeing him is much more effective than actually (laughs) seeing him Um, and it sort of plays into the idea of like 
you know, as a lot of horror movies do, you're, you know, the, the, the thing that's coming after you is your grief, is your fear, and you've got to figure out a way to face it. It's all a metaphor. So it's, it's something that we've seen before. It is okay. There are some okay jump scares here and there, but ultimately it doesn't really quite work. The Boogeyman is in wide release. It's rated PG-13. The sports documentary Entered the Slipstream takes us to the Tour de France. Ted Young is the director. Charles, what do you think of this documentary? Um, this is a very neat, solid, well-constructed film. I will confess I am not a huge follower of the Tour de France, although I commuted on my bicycle for many years. I uh, was not aware of these stories. This was a very difficult time for the U.S. team. Um, uh, Rigo Iran, who was their, their star, had been injured not long before. He had shattered his scapula, and no one knew if he'd ever come back to cycling. The rest of the team, some are veterans, some are new, and it chronicles their experiences leading up to the tour and then in the tour itself and what happens to them. It's not um, a feel-good, oh, they win from behind, which would be completely unrealistic. They do surprisingly well, and at the same time that the cyclists themselves are doing these just impossible-looking rides. I mean, you realize what... Sylvain Chomet was spoofing in Triplets of Belleville with some of the things that crowd the uh, the roadways and the fans and the giant signs. And God, those hills look just murderous. And at the same time, their manager is constantly trying to find a new sponsor before they go broke uh, and have to give up the whole business. So I found it very interesting, very entertaining. And again, just a solid, well-told film that knows how and when to end. Enter the Slipstream documentary is available on demand. It's unrated. In case you were wondering, a slipstream, an area of reduced air pressure and forward suction immediately behind a rapidly moving vehicle. The Roundup, No Way Out, a sequel to the Korean action film The Roundup. It's directed by Sang Yong Lee. Wade. I love this series. It's actually the third in a series. The first one was uh, The Outlaws. It's called the Crime City series. And there will be a fourth okay. and likely a fifth. Um, this is the the Koreans are doing such a great job with making the films that the Hollywood used to. This is, you know, like we used to get this this itch scratched with Beverly Hills Cop. And we don't really make those movies anymore, but they do in Korea. So the wonderful actor Madong Siak plays uh, Detective Ma Siak Do, which is a play obviously on his own name. And he's he's built like Professor Tanaka, if that reference means anything to anybody. He's built like a brick house, and he has a face only a mother could love. And the 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 gimmick of him as a detective is he's he doesn't like to fight, but you know he's he's almost never the one to throw the first punch, but he throws the last. And all he does needs is hit you once, and you're you're out cold. He's you know he he's like a boxer and he comes in and every time people just dogpile him he rolls his eyes why do I have to go through this so he's kind of a reluctant hero even though he's built like just like you know he's made for fighting and the story here this time is he's it's there's a there's a, a drug smuggling operation involving some crooked narcotics cops and the Japanese yakuza and there are some double crossing going on and he's trying to bring everybody to justice and. It just, everything gets incredibly bloody and violent at a certain point, and he's, you know, the pills or the MacGuffin, they're moving around, and, you know, you can't quite keep track of where the drugs are, but he somehow brings it all home, and there are car crashes and car chases and lots of great fighting, and, uh, you know, what you're really seeing it for is Ma Dong Siak. He's just really one of the great action stars in the world right now. Such an unconventional action star, but so much fun to watch. The Roundup No Way Out is in selected theaters. It's unrated in Korean with English subtitles. The romantic drama uh, Falcon Lake is in French with English subtitles. The film is written and directed by Charlotte Le Bon. Christy, what'd you think of Falcon Lake? It's okay. It had some promise there for a while. Um, it's this very subtle kind of coming of age slash ghost story slash like summer that changed everything movie. Uh, these two families meet uh, at a lake, at this cabin on the lake, and one has this 13-year-old boy who's almost 14, and another has a teenager, a teenage daughter who's like 16, but that just seems like a huge chasm between them, even though it's only a couple of years. 
And be, but because they are so close in age, they end up hanging out with each other. He is much smarter and funnier than like the idiot 19 year old that she is, you know, getting drunk with at bonfires by the lake. And they have this bond that forms over the course of the summer. But she insists that there is a ghost there, that the lake is haunted and that she has she has seen it. She has felt it. And they kind of play with the idea of it in morbidly funny ways but also increasingly you can tell this is something that is important to her um it's about their unlikely friendship and i think they have nice chemistry with each other you know the the young man who stars in it joseph engel has sort of a a cool confident presence about him like he's he's scrawny and his his voice is kind of high still for a 13 almost 14 year old but um he's smart and that kind of shines through and that kind of wins her over and it's about you know getting drunk for the first time having your first cigarette and all that kind of stuff it's some very familiar stuff but what Charlotte Bond has done here with her first film is create a sense of mood that is very effective and uh, uses darkness and dusk quite effectively to, to suggest menace but also kind of a melancholy at the same time so I'm not sure the ending totally works but I, I like the fact that she has made this movie Falcon Lake, Wade. I think that sums it up very well. I really, I've, I've got almost nothing to add to that. Right. It's, based on, it's based on a graphic novel. And so I think probably a lot of what doesn't quite work for us, I mean, I'm kind of tepid on it, but I admire pieces of it. I think it probably is inherited from the graphic novel. Charlotte Le Bon is a, is a French-Canadian television personality, and this is her first film as a filmmaker. And I think uh, she has wonderful stylistic flair. Um, so where I think it has shortcomings in the storytelling and not quite being able to decide, you know, is it a ghost story? Is it a coming-of-age story? Is it a romance? It's kind of all those things and none of those things. But um, but she definitely has chops. She knows where she has a great sense of visual style and certainly understands when to turn up the pacing and bring it back down. So I think I'm looking forward to her next film. Falcon Lake is the movie, a French-Canadian film. It's unrated in French with English subtitles, and it's in select theaters. Padre Pio uh, stars Shia LaBeouf. Uh, Abel Ferrara is the director. Mauricio Brauchi is uh, the co-screenwriter with Ferrara. Uh, Wade, what do you think of Padre Pio? I am both uh, curious about what goes on, what it would be like to be inside Abel Ferrara's head, <laughs> and yet the thought of it just terrifies me. Um, I really don't know what's going on here. Padre Pio, of course, is a very well-known, famous Catholic saint, um, a man of, of great personal torment and angst and, and who famously exhibited, uh, uh, you know, stigmata. And it, it, all of that plays into this on some level. What's weird is that the, that storyline with Shia LaBeouf as Padre Pio, and presumably he converted to Catholicism while playing the role, is is n totally disconnected from this other story, which takes place just after World War One, in a small southern uh, Italian village where there's there's this brewing conflict between uh, the townsfolk, many of them returning soldiers, and their and their families, and the landowner. And there are socialist rabble rousers who are kind of trying to you know bring the rally for the forthcoming mayoral election, and that's one story. And then you cut back to the Padre Pio stuff where Shia LaBeouf is beating himself up and screaming at other people and and I don't really know where these two things come together. <laughs> the, the, I kept waiting for Christy's that. Christie's already shaking yeah, her I kept, head I too. I kept waiting for that moment where it just kind of clicked, but it never does. I too am confused. <laughs> like, does Shia LaBeouf ever actually interact with the people in never. the village? No. He's like in no. his room, self-flagellating. Yeah. Or he's praying and crying. Like it's it's like two totally different movies that have been slammed up against yes. each other, and also like stylistically they're so different because the stuff totally. that's happening in the streets is kind of realistic and very intimate, and like people arguing about fascism and yeah. and all that. And then you have Shia LaBeouf in his room, and it's like deeply saturated reds to indicate his inner torment, and he's like sobbing and screaming and having these <laughs> visions, and like they are two totally different movies, and then. Asia Argento shows up as a man. What was that all about? Yeah, it, and completely <laughs> unconvincingly. Right. I mean, uh, yeah, I, it's it's a very strange. You know, it, Abel Ferrara has had a similar trajectory to to a number of other filmmakers uh, who who sort of have this late life religious awakening, but also kind of a, a struggle with it. You know, and. 
Um, I'm not sure, you know, that 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 we really needed to be privy to what he's struggling with here. But I mean, uh, you know, it's not terrible. I just it can't is. make sense. Well, no, it is though. Like the <laughs> dubbing. I did. I had to rewind just like to make sure I was seeing this correctly. The dubbing is so bad at times because a lot of them are speaking English, yeah. and then some of them clearly are speaking Italian, but like with badly dubbed English. I think this is a film like Paul Schrader has been on this similar trajectory, but Paul Schrader's films still sort of have a narrative to them. I mean, there are moments here where I really tried to figure out, you know, and I'm clinging to things, but it ultimately <laughs> doesn't really work. But you know, I can't. I can't totally say it's not worth watching because someone out there is going to be on the Abel Ferrara bandwagon and they'll probably get something out of it. Padre Pio, the film, it's rated R in Italian and English. Uh, the film is at Lemley's Royal in West L.A. and Lemley's Town Center uh, in Encino. Shia LaBeouf starring in the film. Uh, the documentary film, The Living Record of Our Memory, uh, directed by Inez Toharia Teran. Uh, Charles, what did you think of this doc? Well, this is well-intended and by and large competent, but it feels very stolid and very familiar. They talk to a lot of people at archives and um, museums and preservationists, but at this point, how many people are there who don't know that nitrate film deteriorates or that a lot of films were casually destroyed and have been lost, but they may be rediscovered? Uh, what struck me as very odd about it, though, is there are several chunks of an interview with Serge Bromberg, who he used to be the head of the Honesty Festival and did a lot of work restoring and bringing back uh, many of Melier's films that had not been seen or not been seen in the, the proper configuration. But there was an explosion in France last year because he had stored something like a thousand reels of nitrate film in the basement of a regular building outside of Paris that exploded and killed two people. And he was he went to trial, was found guilty, and was recently sentenced. And if all these people are talking about the protocols you need for handling nitrate and dealing with it and the threat of it and the dangers of it, um, you kind of wonder what he's doing there. It's filmed The Living Record of Our Memory, unrated documentary. It's available on demand, directed by Inez Toharia Tehran. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. We'll have more with Christy Wade and Charles when we come back, including the documentary The Godman. You're listening to Film Week on LAS. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for L.A.S. comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on four consecutive Fridays starting May 10th. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. Larry Mantle with critics Wade Major, Christy Lemire, and Charles Solomon. The documentary The God Man is directed by Darren Wilson. Wade, what did you think? Yeah, this is being released by Fathom Events. Um, Darren Wilson, the writer-director, is very upfront at the very beginning. This is an evangelical movie, and he intends it to convert people to Jesus. And therein, I think, is the problem that films that begin as polemics, whatever your goal, tend to sort of push people away from from that goal to begin with. So you've already dug yourself a hole. 
And and it's really too bad because there are pieces of this film that would have made great documentaries on their own. They just wouldn't necessarily have served the agenda he's designed for himself here. Uh, I, I guess the problem I always have with, with advocacy cinema of any type is that it doesn't meet the audience where the audience is. It expects them to meet the filmmaker where they are. And this is so rooted in evangelical culture, the language, the approach, and everything, that unless you're already a part of that, yeah. this is going to feel like a film from Mars. And there are interesting aspects, though. For example, his daughter, who was completely out of her, uh, out of her faith and you know smoking pot and partying, um, took a job just as a job on the film and completely flipped back to being an observant evangelical during the course of the film. That's kind of a minor thread. It's never explored sufficiently. She's interviewed rather extensively, but you kind of want to know more about that. Where was she? What did she do? How did all that come together? That's a very interesting aspect to it. But then it goes into all, the, all these other areas. So, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's certainly, it's preaching to the choir quite literally, and uh, it didn't need to. The Godman documentary, it's at multiple AMC theaters on next Tuesday, June 6th, one day only screening. It's unrated. Uh, the biographical drama Shooting Stars is directed by Chris Robinson, stars uh, Marquise Mookie Cook and Caleb McLaughlin. Uh, Christy, what do you think of Shooting Stars, which uh, looks at young LeBron James? This is a LeBron James origin story. Every superhero gets one. It is summer. <laughs> it's time for his. So he's no longer in the NBA playoffs, but he is going to be on Peacock. And this is how he and his best friends played basketball together in Akron and all came up together and uh, insisted on playing at the same high school together so they could all stay together. And um, the actor who plays LeBron for the majority of the film, you see him as little kids when they're like 10. And then you see him from like age 13 on through their senior year in high school is Mookie Cook, and he actually is a basketball player. He's a star out of Portland. He's going to play for Oregon in the fall. He's signed to play with Oregon. So um, he is like the ballet movie we talked about. He's a basketball player who is not an actor, but he um, has a nice presence about him. Unfortunately, LeBron James is the least interesting part of the LeBron James origin story. Like the The actual character of LeBron in this film is kind of bland compared to you know the friends who have a sense of humor or are ambitious or are reluctant leaders or Dermot Mulroney as their high school coach who is totally chewing up the scenery here like barking out orders and making him do drills um he knows what movie he's in so um you know it's it's a nice kind of inspiring look at what his life was like before he was a superstar that we came to know him to be. There are the jealousies among his friends as he is, you know, clearly going to be excellent. And he is the focus of like Sports Illustrated covers and, you know, national TV coverage and all that. The casting is a little distracting here and there because you have these actors who play the friends from like, 13 until they're like 18, 19. So like Caleb McLaughlin, for example, he's on Stranger Things, is a 21-year-old actor playing a 13-year-old. And we know he's 13 because we say like, here's Lil Drew. He's 13 now. Here's this guy. He's 12 now. And it's just impossible to believe that these people... <laughs> it's, it's not as bad as like Stockard Channing in Greece, yeah, but yeah. it's it's a little distracting for a while until they get to be seniors in high school. A lot of very over-eager drone work here and some on-the-nose musical choices, but a nice inspiring film. Uh, Shooting Stars, uh, starring Mookie Cook, Chris Robinson directs, is rated PG-13, streaming on Peacock. And finally, the comedy Medellin. Wade. Yeah, um, the description of this film is going to sound a lot more interesting than the actual film. Uh, This is uh, starring, co-written by, and directed by Franck Gastambide, who's sort of like a second or third tier French guy Ritchie, and he's, I think he did the last uh, taxi film, whatever they're up to, five, six, seven of those. And uh, the premise here is actually sort of funny. I wish the movie panned out. So it's about, you know, one of the, Gaston Beat has a friend who has a brother who is kind of an online influencer slash imitator of uh, Pablo Escobar. And then he appears to have been kidnapped by Pablo Escobar. So they head to Colombia and kidnap Pablo Escobar's son to make an exchange. 
But of course, everything goes wrong. Nothing is as it seems to be. And then lots of bloodletting and gunplay ensues. And, and it Mike becomes... Tyson shows up. Yeah. And Mike Tyson shows up for some strange reason. It's very weird. Um, <laughs> coaching them on how to be commandos. It's, you know, it, it, it I, I wish it were as fun as that description makes it sound. But it just it's it's a little too bloody to be as funny as it wants to be. And it's a little too dumb to be as entertaining as it thinks it is. Medellin's unrated in French with English subtitles streaming on Amazon Prime. We wanted to give our critics uh, this post-Memorial Day uh, edition of Film Week a chance to preview some of the summer movies they're most interested in. Christy, please start us off. What are you most anticipating? I'm very excited about the weekend of July 21st, because that is Barbie versus Oppenheimer. (laughs) (laughs) Right? You think they're two totally different audiences, but maybe not. So you have Greta Gerwig's take on Barbie, which looks very satirical and very clever and very much sending up our notions of what, you know, Barbie is all about. That looks really fun and just light and playful. Margot Robbie stars as Barbie and Ryan Gosling is Ken, but as we find out, he's just a Ken. There are many Kens, and that's one of the first many funny ideas. Um, Greta Gerwig wrote this with Noah Baumbach. It looks very clever, but then you have this behemoth Christopher Nolan movie at the same time, Oppenheimer, and a Nolan film is always an event. You know, he takes his craft very, very seriously, and you have to see it on a screen, and and that's about um, the creation of the nuclear bomb, and uh, it just they're very, very different films, starring Killian Murphy and a lot of the folks who have been in many, many Nolan films in the past. So that week is very exciting for me. But June 16th, you guys, is Elemental, the new Pixar movie, The Flash, and Asteroid City, the new Wes Anderson movie. So that's kind of a wacky weekend. Yeah, that's coming up very soon. Wade, your picks. Oppenheimer for sure, uh, because it's uh, it's an award season movie during the summer, and and I always find myself craving that. Asteroid City for sure. Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One. I cannot wait for the trailers. Have had me absolutely uh, on cloud nine. Tom Cruise saved Hollywood with with Top Gun. I feel like this is. More Tom Cruise reminding us what we've lost with movie star culture, and uh, you know the the I read the I think it was the Atlantic that ran the story about how, how they just fought through the pandemic and spent a hundred million dollars more than they needed to and went all over the world, and it just sounds like it's going to be the most epic thing ever. So my expectations are probably too high, but that's what I'm really looking forward to. Charles, what are you looking forward to in the summer movies? Well, July third, the Fourth of July weekend, is always Anime Expo. And one of the things that's premiering there is the first Slam Dunk movie. Uh, Slam Dunk is one of the most popular manga series of all time. It sold over 170 million copies. Uh, This is a basketball story that was then made into a TV series and specials. And now Takahiko Inoue, the um, original manga artist, has directed this. It was a huge hit in Japan. Uh, last year, and Inoue is a dazzling draftsman, and I'm really excited about this one. I'm also very curious about Elemental, but I think the most anticipated animated film of this year opens uh, in July in Japan, and that is Hayao Miyazaki's How Do You Live? It will almost certainly be his last film, and it's one everybody's waiting to see what is the master going to do Boy, very exciting. So much to look forward to coming up. Um, Wade, you have another film to add before we wrap? Not, not too many. I mean, uh, there's there's the Neil Blomkamp movie that's uh, that's coming out, uh, Gran Turismo, which I'm curious about. Um, so we'll see. All right. And I, Christy? I got one. Strays on August 18th. It's a bunch of talking dogs, oh. including Will Ferrell. <laughs> I'm excited for Jamie Foxx is the voice of a profane Boston Terrier. That's exciting for me. All right. Sounds <laughs> good. Thanks to our critics for sharing their favorites. Our critics, Christy Lemire, Charles Solomon, and Wade Major. We'll be talking with Deadline's Dominic Patton in just a minute. Get the very latest on what's happening with the writer's strike and how that's affecting film production. You're listening to Film Week here on 89.3 LAist.
It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. Larry Mantle, great to have you with us. In case you missed any of our critics' reviews earlier in the hour, you know, it's available as a podcast, a very popular one. You can get Film Week wherever you get your podcasts or at LAS.com. So pleased to be joined by Deadline Hollywood senior editor Dominic Patton, who'll give us the very latest on the writer's strike pending uh, negotiations with the Directors Guild of America, what all this means for feature films. Dominic, good to have you with us. So much of the emphasis of the effect of the writer's strike has been what's happening to television with the huge number of of streaming productions. But um, what's your sense of what's happening with feature films? Well, Larry, thank you for having me as always. Love it. Um, I think that we're looking, when we look at the big screen as opposed to the small screen, what you're seeing is, I would say, lingering intent. Shutting down television shows, television shows pausing. Look, television is a writer's game, primarily. Film is a director's game. And that is why, in some ways, while the Writers Guild strike is incredibly important, and we have seen a few films like Marvel's Thunderbolts and Lionsgate Good Fortune, which has Keanu Reeves in it, they have shut down pending the uh, resolution of the WGA strike. We're not really seeing this happen too much in films right now. But with the Directors Guild sitting down with the studios, that is where, if they do not reach a deal, that is where you could truly see movies come to a halt. And that is going to be a big fear for Hollywood moving in towards the end of the year. And one of the issues, I would assume, when you when you shut down a film production where so much of the shooting is going to be on location, the cost of then, you know, reviving a mothballed production, that has to add significantly to a film's budget. Oh, of course. I mean, we could use as a as a baseline for this what we saw happen during the pandemic, where shutdowns and, 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 and reopenings cost tens of millions of dollars. Um, Now, you won't see, obviously, the need for the elaborate health protocols that you saw during COVID, but you you will see a significant hurt. You also have to remember, too, that during some of these, if you shut down a film, you're looking at having to compensate stars, major talent. You're having to look at, at people on both ends of the camera to keep them on board for when you do come back. Because, of course, like anything, people have other jobs lined up, and those other jobs could have an effect. So... What I think is essential here is to look at what is going to be a long tail in terms of this. Most films, by the time they really get the cameras rolling, have their scripts in play. So the WGA strike is not the biggest factor. Some do have people on on staff, or some, of course, some films, usually actually, to be honest, bigger action films, they improv a little bit, but not very much. But in some cases, as we've seen with Thunderbolts and with Good Fortune, Those films that are still in the process of finalizing the scripts, they did have to end things. So you've also seen cases like, for instance, the Amazon film with Jennifer Lopez, Unstoppable, which earlier this week was shut down for a day of production by WGA Pickett's. There's all sorts of moving pieces here, but I do think in many ways, the bigger issue for the big screen is going to be in terms of what was in the pipeline to start, which is things in terms of films that had just completed scripts or had not yet completed scripts, but were ready to roll for later in this year, looking at releases going into the next year and what have you, and also what could happen with the Directors Guild if they don't reach a deal with the studios and their contract expires on June 30th. One of the big issues with the Writers Guild of America strike is compensation for TV series which have much uh, shorter lives. Writers are not employed for as long a period of time. There aren't the residuals available that are typically there historically for episodic TV. What are some of the issues as you understand them with the DGA talks? Well, I mean, I think some of these issues with the DGA come down to, you know, One thing I will say that's very important is unlike 2008, the last writer's strike, a lot of the issues the DGA are facing and some of the issues the writers are facing are different. Um, Those are basically have to do with, um, uh, they have to do with looking at the changing nature of the industry. But one thing that is very much the same is there's still discussions about residuals. And residuals in the era of streaming have become a very, very fraught area. Simply put, people aren't making the kind of money they used to. So in those areas, the DGA's discussions with the studios will be very, very much centered on, as they say, cold, hard cash, as is the writer's discussions with the, with the, with the, the, the studios. 
whether or not the DGA will come up with a separate deal for some of their separate issues, and that deal can therefore be overriding and allow the residuals deal if they come up with one or if they find a solution to kind of be wrapped into a package. That's something very, very different. And again, I would also say, too, is, is you know, there's been a media blackout on, on the DGA talks with the studios, as there was with the WGA talks with the studios and, uh, until earlier this month when they went on strike. A lot of moving pieces. We're not quite sure exactly how this will end up. Well, and we'll you... say this, though. Yeah, we do have one sense of this, and that's in terms of the calendar. As we have seen, there are definite times when contracts end. The reason the WGA went out and called a strike in the late evening of May 1st is because their contract expired at 12 o'clock that night. As of 12.01 a.m., um, uh, they, had a, they, had, they were in a strike pose. With the DGA and with SAG, their contracts uh, expire on, at the end of June. SAG are scheduled to start talks with the DGA, with, with the studios, on June 7th. So the DGA talks, which have been going on for a few weeks now, they're really in a bit of a bottleneck right now to see if they can get themselves to a solution, because otherwise you are literally going to have three labor labor contracts floating simultaneously. And that wow. could be a Hollywood nightmare. Oh, yeah. And and uh, so June 30th, we're just weeks away from that deadline. Uh, SAG-AFTRA is, is in the midst of a strike authorization vote. And uh, yeah, this so... So you could have the industry uh, just shut down in pretty much every way, shape, and form, every part of the unionized industry. And the economic repercussions from that, um, for even people outside of the industry, are huge, Dominic. Exactly. I mean, when you, when you talk about these sort of strikes, Larry, when we looked at the 2008 strike, there was an estimation done of the economic impact of that. And that was done to be basically estimated to be over $2 billion for uh, the county of Los Angeles. Because, of course, you're not just talking about people who work on films, and they all work very, very hard. We know that. You're, or on television shows. You're also talking about vendors. You know, I, I've brought this up numerous times, and I hate to be a bore, but I think it's very true. You're looking at the company that provides the, pla the red plastic cups for the craft services table. You're looking at dry cleaners. You're looking at people who pre pre prepare materials for set decoration, for sets being built, et cetera, et cetera. You're looking at lumber yards. All these people, especially in high in intensity film areas like LA County and, and New York City, they will be losing out on business too because there's no need for them if there's nothing being filmed or being produced. And that will have a huge spillover effect which I will say does not lead me to not think that either Governor Newsom or L.A. Mayor Bass may at some point get involved in this. You know, they have both indicated that they're more than aware of what's going on, as has President Biden, by the way. So at some point, you might see some higher action occurring, because at some point, you might just find that, for lack of a better expression, there needs to be a bigger grown-up in the room. All right, Dominic, as always, we appreciate you joining us and talking about the high stakes involved in the current WGA strike, the talks between leadership of the Directors Guild of America and the studios and uh, SAG-AFTRA with the upcoming end of its contract as well. Dominic Patton is with Deadline Hollywood, where he's senior editor and covers all these major issues related to film and television and entertainment generally. Just a reminder, if you miss any of this episode of Film Week, you can still hear it in its entirety. Go to LAist.com. You see where you can download Film Week. You can get it on the app on your phone, the LAist app, or get it wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us at Film Week, thank you for joining us and have a wonderful weekend. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. <laughs> I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. 
Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.